Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 7? Isaiah 7, that's found on page 727 in your pew Bibles. We're actually going to do something a little bit different here. I'm asking you to turn there so that you have it in front of you. But we are not going to read the text yet. Normally, I would like to, and I think it works best to read the text, but as this text begins in a very specific historical context, I want to explain that context, and then we will read the text. So we'll actually begin the message and the sermon with our first point, and then after that, read the text. But you can turn there to have it before you. Before we do begin this time of the preaching of the Word of God, let's ask for his blessing in prayer. Father in heaven, as we begin this message now, we pray that you would speak to us through your word, that we would understand it and know it and actually know you in it, as it contains before us the promise that are very dear to our life, that are very necessary for our eternal life itself, upon your word, upon your ability to save, against all odds, lies our salvation, and we see that here in this text. And so we pray, even as we progress through the, the history of this text, as we look at what happened so many years ago, some, some 2,700 years ago, and yet is so prevalent, so needed, so applicable to us, that we would see what you've done then and see what you're doing now. We ask this in your name. Amen. As I said, this text begins in a very specific historical context, and I wanted to go to, through that in more detail so that we truly see this, this point, and what's the point we want to see as we're going through this. The situation Israel is in as being against all odds, seemingly insurmountable odds in what they're facing in this historic context, and the nations around them, and where they're positioned, especially Ahaz, this king that we'll read about in the text. The timing of our text play, takes place in 735 B.C. That's 13 years before the fall of the northern kingdom in 722 B.C., and it's been at this time and a hundred years prior to this that Assyria has been the major threat to all the surrounding nations. Assyria is that juggernaut, that powerhouse of an empire, making its way throughout all the nations and conquering them, and it has been doing so for a long time. Their goal, Assyria's goal at this time, is to conquer Egypt. And the route that they would take to get to Egypt brings them directly through the, the promised land, the land of Israel, going through the north of Syria, coming down the coast of the Mediterranean, right through the kingdom of Israel, both the northern kingdom and southern kingdom. And the reason that Assyria would do this is not only because there's a desert there that would, that would block a direct route to Egypt, but as well these coastal nations being that they are in the crossroads of the world, rich in agriculture and in a rich land, have become quite wealthy. And so though the, though the prize for Assyria might be Egypt, it is worthwhile, not only because that's their route, but to conquer these kingdoms along the way. And they've been trying to do that for some time. In 853, so over a hundred years before this text, they had tried this before. And Israel, the northern kingdom, and Syria had formed a coalition then to try to halt their progress, to try to halt their advance. And though they, you couldn't say they necessarily won a great victory, they slowed the advance of Syria. So there was some, Assyria, so there was some good that came out of it. 
And then after that time, and in it, much of both Israel, the northern kingdom, and the southern kingdom of Judah's resources, their fear, all that they were seeking to prepare for was for this invasion. So for a long period of time, this threat had loomed. And then something happened in in the Assyrian Empire. There were three kings that were less aggressive, that were not seeking to expand. And so because of this, both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Judah experienced a time of great wealth. In fact, they reached levels that, that had only been reached before by the time of Solomon and by his reign. And there was this brief rest. And why does that matter? It occurred during the time of Jeroboam II from 793 to 753 in the northern kingdom. He ruled for a long time, was quite prosperous, made the northern kingdom of Israel quite powerful. In the southern kingdom of Judah during this time, it was the king of Uzziah. We read about him last time in Isaiah 6 and how he was a strong king who who garnered a lot of support, who built the nations, who, who supported the land. He was a good king. But now, in the time of 745 B.C., the Assyrian throne changed. And an emperor, a man, a king, Tiglath-Pileser III, took the throne, and he was much more aggressive. And so this, this time of prosperity was coming to an end. And it was in that time of prosperity, Amos and Hosea and the prophets of the Lord had warned of the people's sins and said, your time of prosperity will end, judgment will come, and at that time it seemed so unlikely. And yet now as Assyria ramps up their, their juggernaut war machine, Now those prophecies of judgment seem all too real, and there's panic setting in. There's panic, as we saw last time, even in the loss in the southern kingdom. Isaiah loses Uzziah. It's in the year Uzziah dies that this happens. And they're thinking, we're without our king, our stalwart defender. And and there's a succession to these weaker kings, to Jotham, Uzziah's son, who isn't as strong as him. And in the northern kingdom, Jeroboam II, a wicked but powerful king, he's gone. And and they go through like 12 kings, or a series of kings in those 12 years, I should say. And there's no stability on the throne, until finally a warlord of the northern kingdom, Pekah, takes control, and you'll see his name in the text, the Pekah, the son of Remaliah, this one who takes the throne of Israel, and they're trying to defend themselves. And so thinking back to what had happened over a hundred years earlier, when a coalition of, of northern kingdom of Israel and Syria were able to, to stop the threat of Assyria, or at least slow it down, they form a coalition. They form a coalition to fight against this looming threat. Well, in the southern kingdom of Judah, though they had an easier change of kingship, they went to a weaker king. And now it seems even in what the, the situation in our text, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, has, is either a co-regent or has taken the throne itself. And here's the position he's in. The northern kingdom and Syria have joined together to, to try to fight Assyria. And you have the southern kingdom of Judah. They're not friends with the northern kingdom by any stretch of the imagination. And Ahaz is placed in a, in a tight spot, in a decision. Am I going to, to side with, with this coalition and fight against Assyria, which would seem quite foolish with how powerful Assyria is? Or do I send ambassadors to Assyria and become a vassal to them? Do I pay, him, pay Assyria off, in essence, and become their ally? Now, you see the predicament here. The most immediate threat to, to Ahaz and Judah is this coalition 
who would not want an ally of Assyria in their back door, in their southern border, and would also want their resources and armies, so they want to conquer them before Assyria comes. And so they are now amassing their, their coalition against Judah. And so does, does Ahaz seek to, to pacify them, knowing that there's a greater threat coming? You see, we'll see in the text that they want to, to replace Ahaz with the son of Tabeel, someone who would be with them and on their side. It's a difficult situation, right? This, this is world matters. This isn't just something that's dealing with their little kingdoms there on the Mediterranean coast. This is the whole ancient Near East. This is affecting all of it and, and seemingly so far beyond their power. And Ahaz is wondering what to do. He's very concerned here. What he ultimately decides to do is to, to align with Assyria, the bigger bully, the bigger threat, and seek to outlast this coalition, seek to beat them off, and side with this foreign nation, which was wrong for him to do anyways. Exodus 23 tells us that it was a sin for them to align themselves with other nations, which was to take their gods as their own, to align themselves with, with other kings and their gods. It was wrong. But that's where... He's going with it. In fact, he does pay off Assyria. What Ahaz seems to have forgotten through all of this is God, however. is the vision that Isaiah saw in chapter 6 of the Lord on his throne. You see, he's thinking only in the mindset of what a politician and a king of the earth would think. What do I do? How do I retain my power? How do I fight off these threats far bigger than me? Well, to him, the best way to retain that I'll become a vassal of this wicked nation, Assyria. Initially, this seems to work for him. Going into the history a bit following our text, Assyria does conquer Damascus and, and topple Syria, and then it comes in and, and topples the northern kingdom. It seems to have worked at least briefly. But what should he have done in this situation. So now that we have that history before us, I hope we would better understand as we turn to the reading of this text, beginning in Isaiah 7 on page 727 in our Bibles. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, of the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin. And within sixty-five years, 
Ephraim will be shattered from being a people, and the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. That's where we'll end our reading this morning. We will continue that this evening, but stop there at this specific point. We went through the history. These are insurmountable odds from a worldly standpoint. These are things to make any king shake and wonder, what am I supposed to do? But as we've said already, throughout all his reasoning, throughout all the planning of the house of David itself and and Ahaz their king, the line that should have known the Lord, there's no thought given to the Lord whatsoever. No thought taken on on what he might say about this. No desire to find his word. And in fact, it's the Lord himself who prompts Isaiah to go and speak and go to talk to this king and and tell him what this king would want to hear. This immediate threat is no threat. This will not happen. It will not stand. They will not conquer you. This is the, the word of the Lord. Telling him that it will be okay. Telling him, don't be afraid, be quiet, be still. Trust in my word, trust in me. What a situation. It says that he does this when he comes to that conduit at that field. That's likely Ahaz there is is overseeing the water supply for a coming siege. He's likely making the preparations to to make sure they'll have water if they're besieged here. It's all preparations for what's coming And you see that their hearts shake. They're afraid. And then this word of the Lord comes to them despite insurmountable, horrible odds. That's the message he needs. Trust in the Lord here, and and what you're so afraid of will actually not even manifest itself. It won't happen. This threat immediately before you will not destroy you. What words of of comfort, what words of grace. That should be the source of their strength. That's the message they need. That's the message the the people who in, in exile who would read this prophecy, that's what they need, that's what we need. Despite insurmountable odds, the the God in heaven, our Lord, conquers all. There are no odds too great for him. There are no nations that are too powerful for him. Assyria, Syria, the northern kingdom, they're nothing. They're the playthings of the Lord God, and he's coming to the house of David, to the king, and telling him just that. From the perspective of Isaiah, or Ahaz, I should say, they needed numbers, they needed wealth, they needed, they needed money to either pay off the enemy or to fight them. They needed worldly goods. You know what he needed? God with him. The name that we'll get to this evening, Emmanuel, that's what he needed. God with us. And this is God coming to him and telling him he's with the people here. But from Ahaz's vantage point, the promises of God seem utterly useless. And from his perspective, it would seem, why would I entertain this prophet as he comes here while I'm actually doing work that matters? I'm actually preparing for a siege. Get away from me. Stop interrupting me. Stop bothering me for what doesn't matter. This word of your God is what Ahaz would say. 
We see, though, their hearts are shaking, hearts that shake in verses 1 and 2. He is in a difficult situation in in worldly terms. But look at his fear and, and what should be his response. It had actually been, too, the situation is worse than even what I described. A few years before this, the northern kingdom had had fought against the southern kingdom, depleted their resources. The, the southern kingdom of Judah lost much of its manpower. And so he's thinking he's going up against these with a depleted army. The situation is bad. And that's why in verse 2 you read it. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. It's not a surprise. Our hearts would likely do the same. But what's to be done by this Davidic descendant? What's to to be done by him? Ahaz is troubled and determined to look to Assyria for his aid. Ahaz was not a godly man. That doesn't come out right here in this text, but from elsewhere in Scripture. He He was a wicked king. 2 Kings 16, which describes much of what's going on at this time, tells us that Ahaz reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, that he even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations. He sacrificed on the high places, and the money that he used to pay off Tiglath-Pileser was the money from the house of God itself stripping the silver and gold that he found there to pay off this wicked ruler. That's the king. That's how wicked he is. But the Lord is coming to him and telling him, this threat will not succeed. They will not defeat you. What grace do we see there? Ahaz is living in fear, as are those with him. Notice how it describes the house of David there. That's, that's a description of Ahaz and his ruling body his household, but I think it's more than that. I think it's contextually significant. I think what it's doing there is saying, this is the house of David. This is the Lion of Judah. The promised line. By saying house of David, I think we're meant to see the covenant, the promises that God made with them, with David, of an eternal reign, of a kingdom that wouldn't end, of a king to sit on the throne forever. That's the house of David itself. And here to this despicable representative of it, the Lord comes to remind him of that. The house of David, though, is in fear. Their hearts are shaking We start to see the point here that even though the odds are against them, even though that would bring them fear, isn't it interesting what God tells them and tells them how to act? To be quiet, to be at ease, to not shake, to not fear. You know, it's impossible in a sense for humans not to fear a bit when dangers threaten us. There's two types of fear that we face. There's a fear that's part of being a man, There's fear of part of being human that comes out of us, and even if we have faith, we might have have feelings and experiences of fear. But there's another fear that comes, and that's the fear of weakness of faith. And there has never been a human who had such strong faith that they did not need to grow in their faith and in that fear that comes against them that they should stand up, that they should strengthen their faith and trust in the Lord. So there is a, an element where fear is natural, but what, what does a believer do? What would a godly king do? How, do? how would he respond to this threat? Well, what God expects is that he would call upon the name of the Lord and he would expect such a firmness of faith as to overcome that fear. 
And that's where faith should lead us. That's where faith, our faith should lead us in the same against insurmountable odds that are set before the Lord. What, what would happen in the, in, in the face of the fear we might sense and feel? cannot overwhelm us. It, it, it does not take away what we are called to do. It does not take away our obedience or our trust, even when we sense and feel it. The message here is be firm in the faith. Trust the Lord. Obey. That's the context of what will come later in the text and this evening in the promise of Emmanuel. You see, the, the, the promise of the coming Lord himself occurs in a context and to support this truth. The Lord is able to save. The Lord is able to deliver God with us. Emmanuel. That's what we hold to in our fear. And that's where the house of David, the Lion of Judah, should have turned. Trusting in the Lord. But there's this prophetic intervention Isaiah calls God to go meet Ahaz. He tells him to bring his son, Shear Jashub. That's a name that means a remnant shall return. That name is both a blessing and a prophetic judgment. On the one hand, it's saying that there's going to be judgment, and we know that already. The prophets have said that. The, the wicked people of God will face a disciplining hand. There's going to be judgment. And so there's that side of it. There's that judgment side. But there's also this gracious side that a remnant will return, that, that God will not utterly cast off. And so the question here is, why does God tell Isaiah to bring his son to the king? Likely, the naming of Isaiah's son, a well-known prophet, very, very significant in that day and in the eyes of the people. They knew who he was. Likely, they knew his name and knew what it meant. And Ahaz would have known the same. That's why there's no even comment on it in the text. But God is saying, take your son and what his name means and place it right before Ahaz. And that's to tell Ahaz, listen, this is all planned out by God. Uh, uh, there's judgment coming. It's not coming yet, but it will come. And will you be part of the faithful remnant or not? Put that before him. A remnant shall return. This is the word of the Lord. The writing is on the wall. So he brings his son. Would Ahaz believe and, and be part of that faithful remnant? And then you hear the verse, verse 4, what message God delivers to him. Be careful. Be quiet. Do not fear and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. What a charge. First, see here a correction to our understanding of fear. We already explained that there is an element of fear that is just natural to being a creature and a man, that there is feelings of fear that come, but there is a wicked and sinful fear in response. And this, it's to this that God is speaking. He's saying, be, be careful, be quiet, do not fear. Do not turn to sin, Ahaz. Because that's what he's doing. Making an alliance with a wicked emperor, sinning against God in that way, not trusting him. You see what his fear is causing him to do. He's not overcoming his fear. He's running before it. He's shaking, as are those with him. Flying before the wind with no strength, with no firmness. God says, do not let your heart be faint. 
And that's the natural inclination, is, is to allow our hearts to be faint against the insurmountable odds of what we see in front of us. How? How can God save? Isn't that just the gospel? How can God save me, a sinner? How can he put to right what I've made such a mess of? How can an entire race, a human race, be guilty in Adam and continue to just further their own guilt personally as we live and breathe on this earth? How can God overcome that? Insurmountable odds. Or how can the church today, how can the church stand? We, we seem so weak. Seems like we don't have a voice. Seems like we can be wishy-washy and fall away. How can the church be preserved? How can we trust in the promises of the Lord against such an insurmountable foe? Do we trust that God is able to deliver? Do we trust that God is able to save against all odds? He's been doing it from the beginning. And we've been doubting it from the beginning. Constantly in Scripture put before us our narratives and stories that are telling the people of God to trust the deliverance of God's hand and his ability to save the grace that he gives. This wicked king won't see it. And then I love how the verse, how God, this is God speaking through Isaiah, how God describes the threat because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. That's what they are to him. They're nothing to him. They might make a lot of smoke. They might make a, a big deal of themselves, but they're nothing, and their fierce anger are nothing. You'll even see in the text there how it continues to call, it's actually Pekah, who was said earlier, is the son of Remaliah. Why does the text continue to say that? It says everyone else by name, but it refers to him mostly as the son of Remaliah. It's because Remaliah was a nobody. Because Pekah was a nobody. He was a general. He was a warlord that took the throne. He had no heritage. He had no line that connected. He had nothing honorable about him. So as it's saying the son of Remaliah, what God is actually saying is the son of a nobody. That's who's coming against you, these firebrands, this, this resin, the son of a nobody. Is that who you're afraid of? They may want to take Ahaz down, but God tells him not to be afraid. Verse 7 it shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. What Ahaz is fearing won't happen. In fact, verse 8 says that both of these two immediate threats, Ahaz in Syria, Israel in the northern kingdom, they'll be destroyed, and the text says within 65 years. Now, if you're following the, the line of history, you would say, well, wait a second, it happens far quicker, and it does. It'll be in 13 years that the northern kingdom will be totally destroyed. So what is this 65 years? Well, the number may be referring actually to the earlier prophecy that Amos gave when he had given that it would be 65 years until this took place. And so what Isaiah may be doing here is not saying that it will remain 65 years from this point, but of the remaining 65 years, this will happen. That's a possibility. Other scholars also point out that it was around 65 years later, so after 722 in the fall of the northern kingdom, when the people of the, the nation or the, peop, the land of Samaria and the northern kingdom were, were finally and fully dispossessed and, and Gentiles were fully brought in and, 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 and were placed in the land. And so it could be referring to that as well, not just the fall in 722, but their, their full dispossession. 
So it could be one of those, those ideas, but it's likely not meaning that it'll be 65 years from Isaiah's prophecy. Because it's going to happen much sooner. And, and you see that as this text goes on. You see that even in chapter 8. We'll get to that this evening, that it'll only be in a few years that these kings will fall. So God is calling Ahaz to believe. And you even see that in verses 8 and 9. What is, what is the text meaning, this head of business? You know, you, you have Rezin as the head of this, and, 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 and the son of Remaliah, the head of, what is that meaning? Likely that's meaning this, that Pekah, the son of Remaliah, Rezin, they're the heads of their own nations. That's where their authority lies. They should be content with that nation. They should be content in the sphere God has given them to reign over, and that they cannot reign over his people. They are not his, they're not Jerusalem's head. So it's something like this. It's basically this. It's as if God is telling Syria and the northern kingdom to stay in their zone, to stay in their lane. Stay in your zone, Damascus. Damascus, your, your head is resin. Jerusalem, your head is the son of Remaliah. Not Jerusalem, uh, Samaria. Stay where you've been given your power. Don't come here, it won't happen. You're the head there, you're not the head here. The truth is, Ahaz did not stand in threat from Syria or Israel or Assyria, the threat facing him right now is, is he going to trust this prophetic word being given to him? Is he going to turn from his ways and be numbered among the faithful remnant as Isaiah's son is standing right there in front of him? Or is he going to turn? Your security rests in faithfully trusting in the Lord. You see, trust in the Lord should cause us to obey his word even when it appears against all odds. Trust in the Lord should cause us to obey his word even when it appears against all odds. And, and, and here's the application, though, I would make to that. We might sit here and say, amen, absolutely, that's, that's the truth. It's the gospel truth. It's easy to say that, sitting in the pew, when we're not facing threats to this scale, it's easy to say that when we're, we're not afflicted by these things and these insurmountable odds. It's much harder to trust that and say that when afflicting you and present right before you is what seems to be insurmountable. Seems to be foolish, right? For a political king, doesn't it seem quite insane to, to abandon his political moves and, and not make alliances and just trust the Lord. Doesn't that seem ridiculous? You see what the, the Lord is actually asking a wicked king to do? Trust in him when it would be foolish to your own understanding? But isn't that what he calls and always has called his people to do? And isn't that in a sense, and I say in a sense because I'm not saying we're all Ahaz on the throne that all of our decisions matter as much as, as a, an anointed one of the Lord does. But there is a lesson in this text, and the lesson that we are to take is to trust in the Lord against all odds, is to trust in his word and his promises. And he's put this before us, and he's put and even wrapped history around it to be in a place where it would seem foolish to trust, and yet, at the end of the day and years later, who's the fool? the one who didn't trust the word of the Lord so clearly given. 
Your security rests in faithfully trusting in the word of the Lord. And then how does, how does our portion of the text this morning end? What does God say? If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. How true. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Your deliverance, Ahaz, your deliverance, Judah, lies in faith and not alliances, not in armies, not in fortifications, not in water supplies. If you are firm in faith, you will be firm, but if you are not, you will not be firm at all. Security ultimately rests on our trust in God and his word, trust in his promises, trust in what he says, People of God, you are not to be weak in faith. You are to be firm in faith, or you won't be firm at all. And isn't it a gracious message from God to to put before us this king, and ultimately a negative example, to prove the point. To prove the point that even when the the king and the line of David seems to fail, and that's what's going to happen, and that's why this, this message is needed for the people as they go forward, the message of God with them, the message of of one to come who will be their Savior because it gets worse. It gets worse for, for, for them. It seems more improbable that God could eke out a salvation for his people. And yet we see the story, we know that he does. True trust in the Lord should cause us to obey his word even when it appears against all odds to do it. And and we should take that personally, even to our own lives and to the own sicknesses we face and to the the odds of our life and the things that give us trouble. And and it's not to say then, oh, trust in the Lord and your, your sickness will be gone. Or to trust in the Lord and your loved one will be saved. It's not that. You're trusting in the wisdom of God to against what seems impossible to you to bring out his will and plan and work it. No one at this time could have predicted exactly what God would do, and and it seemed like defeat after defeat following this, but it wasn't. It was step after step to Jesus, to Emmanuel, to God with us. That was the plan. That is the God we serve able to deliver, able to save against whatever we face, but to save in the right way, not our miniature understanding of what that would be. You, you can just think of it. If, if Ahaz would have trusted or, or, or thought, oh yes, my, the biggest thing we need right now is just deliverance from these current threats, how small that is. When you're weighing redemptive history, you would say, if that's the only deliverance God would give, it would be pointless. Because what did it matter that they had a few more years in the land as a kingdom there? No, what you'd want is what God did. And bring about his, his Savior, his Son, through that process to save. We'll see more on that this evening. But we leave us this morning with this thought. True trust in the Lord should cause us to obey his word, even when it appears against all odds. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we see displayed in this text a, a true picture, a true picture of uh, a weak and sinful human heart in, in a king who was called to, to listen, 
And we'll see that more this evening, but we, we, we do see it in our own heart. We do see at times in what we face as a doubt that you will carry it out, and what we need is that very similar message. Do not be afraid, do not shake, trust. Trust in you and your abilities to deliver, to, to save us from sin. It is only found in you. And we pray that that's what we would do that our response would be that response of a of, of faith that rests and finds its security in your word and in your mighty acts to save that we've seen. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.